Given the constraints of time, uh, I will, uh, I'm going to sort of uh, do this slightly differently than I had planned. But all three readings are important, and I want to say a word about the reading from Job, from Hebrews. And then there's no way I read this week, I can't duck the, the, the reading from the Gospel of Mark. Uh, the most absolute prohibition of divorce uh, in, in the New Testament. So we need to talk about what it means and begin always with the predicate when we talk about these things um, of my, my teacher and friend at Neshota House, Dr. O.C. Edwards, who told us it isn't important what the Bible says, it's important what the Bible means. So we need to uh, do a little work on this, this reading from Mark's Gospel and I hope it will be somewhat illuminating and maybe if the question period is uh, non-existent or very short, you'll think about this for next week and we can continue to talk because we will be talking about Job for the next three or four weeks. So let me say some introductory things about uh, the book of Job, just sort of biblical scholarly things that might be of interest to you and uh, uh, a quick, some questions that the book raises. That then we'll talk about the answers uh, in the weeks to follow. The book of Job is written in beautiful Hebrew, and more than any other book in the Hebrew Bible, it has more words in it that occur only in Job and nowhere else in the Hebrew Bible. So there's a lot of unique uh, uh, word stuff in uh, the book of Job. You know, that's important for people who study the Bible. I have a couple of uh, books on the New Testament. Sabe Kubo's, the theological word book of the New Testament, it has every Greek, word, every Greek word that's in the New Testament, how many times it's used. So, so it tells you, for example, if in a particular biblical book in the New Testament, uh, what words are unique to it, if there are any, and how many times they occur, and in some of the other and the other uh, writings, how many times they occur. And it's very interesting from a standpoint of studying. So they do the same uh, with the Hebrew Bible. And that's how they know that uh, Job has all these words that occur nowhere else in the Hebrew Bible. Job was written by somebody who we do not now know. And we suspect, expect that it's uh, more than one person. We don't know the exact location. But we, and we think that the book was written somewhere between the 10th century BCE and the 6th century BCE. So there's 400 years to play with there. And remember the psalm that we read uh, as the sequence uh, about God. Some say it was a, 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 a more cynical commentary on Psalm 26, but that doesn't have much uh, play in the scholarly world, but some say it anyway. Here's, here's the thing, the questions I want to leave you with that I'm not going to answer. Do you think God is capricious? Why in the world would God uh, get into, in cahoots with the Satan to afflict Job or agree to this wager? Remember in the Old Testament and in the New Satan does not mean the devil, the personified uh, devil as we understand the devil, but is the advocate, is, is a term for advocate. 
But what in the world is God listening to this advocate for in the first place? How do you and I determine righteousness? Does righteousness mean somebody who is uh, well-heeled and prosperous and a big cheese in the community, and that's how we understand a person of integrity and a person who's uh, a righteous person like Job? Is that the criteria uh, that we use to measure this? How do we understand uh, why God would afflict people, innocent people, with suffering? And what do we do about that whole issue of innocent suffering? So in the next three or four weeks, we're going to hear some speeches, and we're going to hear some commentary by Job's friends and Job himself and by God about all of those issues. So stay tuned, because uh, the book of Job is a very, very interesting book to read and to think about. And more than one commentary that I read this week about this said, you know, you can't read this and think immediately what it might be about. You've got to do some, some chewing over what it says in the text and, and so forth. Just a, sort of a, a little preview. Christian people do not believe that God is capricious. That's a difference in our views about a number of things. So remember that you hear me say all the time, every one of you is here for a purpose. And we believe that the world has a purpose. And we believe that God has a plan for each of us in his purpose and plan for the cosmos. That that's part of the Christian understanding of reality. The epistle to the Hebrews is a extended uh, sermon on uh, by the writer to exhort the audience that he was writing to and for to uh, stay the course with regard to their Christian commitments and to understand Jesus, as you hear me say over and over again, as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So here's the situation on the ground, and we'll read again from Hebrews in the next two or three weeks, four weeks as well. The audience that this letter was directed to were a group of Jewish Christians who, prior to their uh, converting to Christianity, had been followers of the great Jewish Hellenist philosopher Philo of Alexandria. This is, he's a famous person in the whole ancient Near East and in the study of all of this. And he lived sometime before Jesus, but had enormous influence on Jews who had lived in the diaspora outside of Jerusalem and who had been influenced by Greek or Hellenist thinking. This is very, in the history of ideas, this is very important because Christianity gets forged out of a collision between the Hebrew worldview and the Greek worldview. They come together like this. And how do they merge and what it is, is it that they fuse together in terms of how they understand God, spirit, reality, and so forth. So Philo was a great follower or adherent of Plato. And Plato said, you know, there's no such thing as perfection here. All that we see here is imperfect, imperfect copies of what's here that is perfect. 
you know, or we're not able to see it clearly. I'm, I'm not doing this justice, but some of you who've read any, any of Plato at all know the story of the cave, where you're sitting, you're in the cave and you see the shadows on the cave and so on. So that's the illustration that he uses to say that the images that you're seeing aren't the real images because it's reflecting from the back. So the writer is saying this, we have seen now in this man's words and in this man's works a species of perfection that we now will be able to tie ourselves to made in God's image and likeness. And the person of Jesus Christ bears in him, in his ministry, in his words, in his works, in his person, the very imprint of God. And in that book about all the Greek words, the imprint, the word that is used for that is the tool that a coin maker uses in the ancient Near East to stamp the face on the coin. So the very imprint that he bears is the image and likeness of God. And by extension, because of his humanity, you and I are made in God's image, and that's part of our Christian anthropology. So the writer to the Hebrew, author to, of the letter to the Hebrews is talking now about how you and I participate in that perfection. The perfection that he attaches to Jesus is not moral perfection. It is maturity. You've heard me say this before. In Matthew's Gospel, the Savior says you must be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. I used to struggle with that mightily. Becoming perfect can make you sick or crazy. <laughs> can. But if you read it in the Greek text, it says mature. Well, mature might be a little easier for me to get to than perfect. And the, right, and the author of the letter to the Hebrews is talking about seeing in Jesus someone as a human being who has come to full maturity. And so that call is being extended to each one of us to learn in spiritual, emotional, mental, and relational terms the ways and the means that we can achieve that kind of maturity. And we've talked over the last couple of weeks that there's ways that you can check that out by looking at your life and seeing how you have been able to improve in certain love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control, if you're able to exercise or practice any of those traits with a little more ease or readiness, that represents a, a species of spiritual progress and maturity. So this is what the writer to the letter to the Hebrews is talking about, and we'll have more to say about it. So now, D-E-I-V-O-R-C-E. <laughs> So what I'm going to say is kind of complicated and maybe highfalutin and, and you may get lost, but I've just decided I'd do it anyway. <laughs> All right. Uh, Mark's gospel is the earliest gospel, but it is not the earliest place in the New Testament where divorce is mentioned. The earliest writings in the New Testament are the, are the letters of Paul. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul uh, uh, interprets what he understands is Jesus' strict prohibition against divorce that we see repeated in Mark's gospel and uh, allows an, accept an exception. 
And the exception that he allows that's the most important in 1 Corinthians is that if you're married to somebody who isn't a believer, you can divorce them. So here's how, when I was in seminary, I got taught about this passage from Mark and how we understand and interpret Jesus' absolute prohibition uh, of, for divorce and some important things about all of this because it's absolutely clear that here we have it. But even in this passage, there's an exception. And the exception is that he now allows both men and women to divorce each other because in the Roman Empire, they could. So he has changed that because in Judaism, it was only men. Um, two famous rabbis you read all the time in Jewish, you know, Mishnah and all that. Rabbi Hillel, you've heard of Hillel, the Hillel family. Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Hillel uh, was very strict about the circumstances by which you could get divorced. Rabbi Shammai says you can divorce your wife if she's a bad cook. <laughs> right? In other words, it can get down to some minutia about things that you just don't like, some habits of being and relating, and just go, I'm finished, and I'm not doing this anymore. You know, there it is. So uh, even within the time of Jesus, there was much debate about this. So here are the three things, and I'll explain them, that you need. This is very fancy-schmancy language. Here's what you need to consider whenever you read this. The eschatological horizon of Mark's gospel, number one. Number two, the church's liberty that it exercised immediately in the New Testament period to, to determine and change the absolute prohibition by Jesus. And third, the pastoral reality on the ground today in 2009 that we have to face, so the role of marriage and divorce in our own time. You know, I think about my own life. There has been an absolute sea change in this country with the way men and women relate to one another. And the Mercury News had an article about two years ago in it about all the women who were in their 20s and 30s and early 40s who had never married and who had bought their own houses and had their own life and didn't care whether they got married or not. Or if they did, the list of requirements was fairly substantial. <laughs> so they weren't just, you know, caving in. Or they weren't just, you know, settling, right? So that's a, that's a demographic issue that's real. And it's something completely different than existed in the ancient Near East. And therefore, it brings upon us new pastoral realities and circumstances. The eschatological horizon of Mark's gospel meant this, if you can follow me. Mark's gospel was written uh, between 70 and 75 AD. In 70 AD, the Roman Empire destroyed the temple in Jerusalem for the congregation out of which Mark's gospel emerged and a number of other Christian congregations, they believed that this was a sign of the coming of the apocalypse immediately. And what that meant was that after Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven in 33 AD, a generation later, he's coming back. 
Are you with me? We believe this. So eschatology has to do with the coming of the, the new age and the disappearance of the old order. And so in Mark's view and in the Jesus in Mark's gospel, we have a situation where what will happen when he comes is that the kingdom of God will be here and we have now returned ourselves to the status quo ante, meaning that men and women are going to relate to one another as they did in the pre-fall condition in the Garden of Eden. So we will not need to talk about divorce, nor will it be permitted. It doesn't need to be. Because now the kingdom is here, the reign of God is here, and this is how people are going to relate to one another. So that is the worldview of the author of Mark's gospel. Matthew, 